Hi, you're listening to EpiTalk Behind the Paper, a monthly podcast from the Annals of Epidemiology. I'm Patrick Sullivan, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and in this series, we take you behind the scenes of some of the latest publications featured in our journal. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jason Nagata about his article, Associations Between Sexual Orientation and Early Adolescent Screen Use, Findings from the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development, or the ABCD study. You can find the full article online in the June 2023 issue of the journal at www.annalsofepidemiology.com. So Dr. Jason Nagata is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine at UCSF San Francisco, and affiliated faculty with the Institute for Global Health Sciences and the Center for Sexual and Gender Minority Health. He's also a co-founder of the International Association for Adolescent Health Young Professionals Network. Dr. Nagata's research interests include digital technology, eating behaviors and disorders, food security, nutrition, alcohol use, cardiovascular disease, HIV, and LGBTQ plus health. Dr. Nagata, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks for featuring and doing this recording uh, during Pride Month. So um, we're at least recording this during June, which is Pride Month. And I think it's a really great opportunity. And I'm I'm so excited to see your focus on not just LGBTQ plus health, but particularly in sort of younger people. And I wonder if you could just start out by describing some of the main findings from your paper. Our, our main findings were we looked at lesbian, gay, and bisexual adolescents aged 10 to 14 years old, and we found that overall LGB youth had significantly more recreational screen time per day than their heterosexual peers. This ended up being about four more hours per day, actually, which is quite a large amount if you think about it. We actually looked across all different modalities, so not just television viewing, which prior literature has really focused on but really more contemporary modalities like social media, video chat, internet, texting, and video games. And essentially across all of these modalities, gay and lesbian youth had more recreational screen use throughout the day. Yeah, I mean, that four-hour figure just struck me. Uh, I mean, as an effect size in the context of how many hours we have to spend in the day, it's really an incredible you know, chunk of time. I mean, with respect to that difference, you you sort of talk about the fact that sexual minority youth had a lot more screen time and the discussion you point out, because this is really a sort of observational study, it's a little hard to know what that represented. And you sort of propose that maybe this is a defensive mechanism or maybe it's some kind of a resilience mechanism. So can you say a little bit more about how you thought about that association and what it might mean? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We do have the measure of the time difference, but we really don't know from this study, especially due to its observational nature, sort of the content and the quality of that four hours that was being spent. So I think you're absolutely right. Some of the things that we thought about were that in general, we know that sexual minority youth may be more likely to experience school-based bullying or exclusion from peer groups due to their sexual orientation. And they may actually be able to find some of that connection and support through online means. You can imagine that particularly in a smaller community or a more rural community, 
sexual minority youth may be the only person in their class or cohort who is out. And so it may be very isolating in terms of their in-person dynamics, but they may be able to find connection and support through virtual means and have access to more people. So I think there could definitely be beneficial and you know social support mechanisms that are part of this additional screen use. But we did actually specifically measure a problematic screen use measure. So there have been these validated questionnaires looking at um, problematic video game use, social media use, and mobile phone use. And some of the questions in that measure assess qualities of problematic, say, social media use, such as using it too much, having conflicts related to use, having uh, takeover uh, more of your time, and also even having difficulty with schoolwork or other work due to that overuse of that modality. And we did also see across the board that sexual minority youth did report higher problematic use scores across social media and mobile phones and video games. Yeah, thanks for that additional information. I mean, I wonder if you could have whatever NIH grant you want um, and, and you wanted to answer this question about you know, are these really defensive versus, um, you know, resilience or a mix of that? What kind of next steps might you take or what, how would you like to answer that question? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think right now the available data from this uh, adolescent brain development study cohort really is limited to the time measure. So we know how much time people are reporting that they're spending on it, but we really don't know the content and the quality. However, it's a great question that you asked. The NIH actually is supporting um, in future years uh, app that will actually be passively scraping these kids' mobile phone use throughout the day for a three-week period. And so actually during that time, we will get a little bit more objective data and device-based measurement on specifically what types of you know, apps people are using. And I think in my ideal scenario, if we actually could get the exact content, you know, the, what people are typing in searches and the exact type of interactions, then we might be able to better answer, you know, exactly what the content and quality of the interactions that particularly sexual minority youth are engaging in on, on these online platforms. Yeah, it's great. You know, I think one of the interesting things here is that you took the adolescent brain developments, ABCD, right? uh, this larger study, which really wasn't focused on sexual and gender minority youth and just used a subset. And you still had enough sort of respondents in that to get some pretty significant findings. Was it challenging to sort of, or what was your process to ask about access to these data and to propose this and, and to get access to this data set? Yeah, the ABCD study is a large study across 21 different sites that's funded by the NIH, but the data availability is open to actually anyone with a data use agreement. And so you can apply through the National Institute of Mental Health Data Archive um, to get access. And I actually first learned about it because I was trying to study screen use and physical activity in adolescence as part of a career development award, a K award, um, as I started as a junior faculty. Um, and I was looking for different cohorts to analyze. And I came across the ABCD study cohort and was put into contact with the principal investigator in Northern California, where I'm from. And it just so happens that her name is Dr. Fiona Baker, that the PI for the Northern California site is also the co-chair of the digital technology working group. And so she really is the one who decides with along with her committee, what digital technology and screen measures are assessed at each year. And so it ended up being a very nice collaboration because um, she was local, but also had the content expertise of this digital technology and social media use. And so 
Um, we've been working a lot on analyzing the digital technology data from ABCD. That's great. I appreciate you sharing that because I think for a lot of folks, especially like students or people who are earlier in their careers, you know, finding really rich data to do these kind of analyses with can feel like a challenge. But a lot of these, you know, federal big data collections you can get access to. And I'm going to reach out to you after and make sure that we put a link in the show notes to if there's a website or a, a way to get more information about this particular data set, because it sounds like people can actually come with ideas. So that'd be a real generous um, piece for you to share and for us to pass on in the show notes. So you talk some about the limitations of using the secondary data analysis, and yet you found some really, in epi terms, some pretty strong associations and some some pretty relatable associations in terms of these behaviors. So I wonder what implications you feel like, is there anything policy-wise yet, or is it mostly to inform future research or, or who needs to know about this? I mean, I think that there are any kind of research these days on adolescent social media use is very policy relevant. Actually, just a few weeks ago, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory on youth social media and links to mental health. This actually just came a couple of years after the initial Surgeon General Advisory on Youth Mental Health more broadly in the context of the pandemic. Uh, and actually, our very first ABCD study, which showed that youth screen time doubled during the pandemic. So at baseline of the ABCD study in 2016, at that time, the cohort was 9 to 10 years old. They had about, on average, four hours of recreational screen use per day. And by May 2020, so like the first few months of the pandemic, that had doubled to almost eight hours Per day, and that was recreational screen use. That didn't count, you know, if people were in Zoom school or doing remote school work. And so, actually, that was the first article that was cited in the Surgeon General's report, being like, you know, there's this huge increase in screen use. I mean, understandably, of course, given the context, but still, as you were saying, if you think about kids spending eight hours of their recreational time every day on screens, which you know does make sense, but what you know what impacts that might have, you know, both there, are, you know, certainly are benefits, but there are certainly are potential risks. And I just think that, you know, given the Surgeon General Advisory that just came out a few weeks ago, and there's actually tons of legislation right now at the federal and state level um, about social media and adolescence right now, about, you know, age limits, you know, currently the age limit is 13, you technically need to be 13 years old to have an account, but there's no robust age verification. So anyone can actually lie about their age and get an account. One other finding from the ABCD study was that at baseline, you know, these nine to 10 year olds, about 20% had a social media account, although none of them technically should have been able to. So that was also a finding that all 20% of this national sample had lied about their age to, you know, get an account, um, which just reiterates that, you know, the age verification process is not really robust. So I think that there are lots of implications for any of these ABCD studies, just because there's so much ongoing legislation about social media in teens and particularly the early adolescents. Yeah, thanks for that. I also feel like from a perspective of a person who writes grants also that this seems like a real opportunity, you know, for sort of M health or, or digital health based interventions. You know, we say we want to meet people where they are with public health services. And if anything, this just suggests that although there are particular challenges experienced by these LGBT or in, in your study, sexual minority youth participants. There also is this highly prevalent device access and a lot of time and a lot of opportunity if the interventions can be developed that then are effective and in, in being delivered through that, that format. So, I mean, I think there's risk 
And there's also opportunity, it seems like. Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, so we're going to pivot just a little bit because um, part of the subtitle of the podcast is Behind the Paper. And so I always think it's interesting just to talk to people a little bit about the process. I think especially for students, for people who are earlier in their careers, a lot of times they want to ask questions about like, how do you come up with ideas and how do you get that done? And how do you get your colleagues on board? And just like the process of producing this kind of research. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about like what what was your uh, most exciting part of conducting this particular research? Like there's always some data cleaning and some IRB approvals or some, you know, but where where was the excitement for you and discovery in, in your process? Yeah, thanks for covering these topics about behind the paper. I actually think that my favorite part about this involves students. So the second and third author of this paper were respectively a medical student at UCSF and a master's of public health student at UC Berkeley. And over the summer, we host a number of summer students who do full-time research. It just ends up being like how most of the academic calendars work um, for like the med students. They usually have the summers off to do research, similarly for the master's in public health students. And so we were actually, you know, the main objective of my Che Award is not necessarily looking at sexual minority health. It was more broadly looking at downstream effects of social media, screen use, and physical activity. But, you know, as a gay man myself and somebody who has interest in LGBT or sexual minority research, this sort of came up as a side project because I had a couple of students who were interested in the topic and LGBT health more broadly. And we had already analyzed all the screen data for you know, so other prospective analyses. And so it just so happened that we were like, oh, we should look at to see if there was any associations with sexual orientation and, and screen use. And so this actually was like a summer research project from last summer that kind of came about from a collaboration with, with two really spectacular students. That's great. So I want to thank you both for, you know, making those opportunities available to earlier career colleagues. And I think it, for me, it's some of the most joyful work that I do is uh, is working with earlier career people who are in that process of like devouring the methods, the, you know, the substance and producing these things. And for, you know, identifying yourself as a gay man, as I am, and we also bring our own lived experiences to this work. And, you know, sharing that, I think, is also generous. There was a time in my career where I'm probably much, much older, but the time when I was much more reserved about my personal life and so questions didn't get asked. So I think it's a feature of of our identities and our willingness to share them that it opens up areas of inquiry that just didn't happen before. So thank you for on both of those counts. And thanks for recognizing your earlier career colleagues and their contributions to the paper. I'm going to just ask one more question about your own path. So, you know, in terms of your training, your development, how did you get involved in this particular area of research in adolescent health, young adult health, LGBTQ health? And was that sort of a place you were aiming towards? Or for a lot of us, it's a place that we we find ourselves where we land because of the world and stuff. So what was your journey to have this particular focus in your research? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of a mix of many of luck and interest. You know, adolescent health and medicine, I really like it because it has this intersection of physical health issues and mental health. And there's just so much excitement during adolescence. There's so much growth and development and people are becoming or transitioning towards becoming adults. And 
I guess I would say that my first influence was really my parents. My mom was a pediatric nurse and my father was a mental health social worker. So in some ways, I basically am doing like the <laughs> intersection of their two careers. So I don't know, maybe I was destined for it. But, you know, as I went through college and medical school, I actually was very interested in, in nutrition issues. And I think that pediatrics is a time when, you know, nutrition is really important. And so I initially became interested in pediatrics because I was looking at sort of behavioral nutrition research. I liked the pediatric population. And then when I was a third year medical student, you know, that's when you start your clinical training. I was actually just placed in the teen clinic. So, and mostly dealing with, um, you know, primary care for teenagers and also specialty care related to eating disorders and other mental health issues uh, in teens. And I just loved it because I think, you know, you could really interact and talk and engage with the teenagers themselves, but they were still, you know, you know, in need of guidance. And so I just really enjoyed that patient population. And then I think from there noted that, you know, adolescent medicine is actually a relatively new specialty in pediatrics, only within the last 30 or so years. And there's just so much, I think, research gaps in the field that it seemed like it was a good fit because it was a relatively new field. There's a lot of research that still needs to be done. And I just enjoy working with that population clinically. Yeah, thanks. And I think there's also, you'd know better than I, I would, but I think there's also a higher prevalence of eating disorders in, in sexual gender minority youth. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I should have also mentioned that I guess I sort of have two lines of work. One is this sort of population-based epi research looking at the ABCD study and other cohorts focused on adolescents. But my clinical research is almost exclusively now focused on eating disorders and particularly in sexual and gender minority youth and actually boys and men. Great. Well, I'm going to give you the final word here. And just I've sort of mentioned a couple of times that the later I get in my career, the more I'm focused on earlier career people and young researchers and aspiring students. So do you have any advice for young researchers or students who may have an interest in this topical area and who want to pursue research and who are not sure how to get on that path? What, what advice would you give? Uh, yeah, I think that my best advice is to you know choose a topic that you're passionate about and then really persevere. I was going to mention that one of the biggest challenges, I think, for this research was getting that initial NIH funding. And so for the K award that I had mentioned that I applied for, uh, in order to allow me to conduct these analyses of the ABCD study and other adolescent cohorts, I think I had to reapply for it three times before it was finally funded. But now that it is funded, it's just been really amazing. I think I chose the sort of topic that I really wanted to delve into, and I really appreciated being able to have a lot of protected time now to run these analyses in the ABCD study. And I think that because I continued to try despite critical reviews. Um, I'm really happy that I didn't change topics, but I still like, you know, worked on revising until it was in a fundable range. Yeah. And that is an important message for those uh, folks who are in that sort of PhD to K transition. I think that is much more the norm of the experience is multiple um, cycles of review and update. And I know it can feel discouraging, but it's it's also like that gives you that really great runway in which to, uh, you know, get your own program of research started and focus on what you want to. So congratulations on that. So do you have any other last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners or anything else that I haven't asked you about your research that you think is important to share? 
No, I think that this has been a really wonderful conversation and thanks so much for featuring our work. And I do hope that we'll be able to look at other insights related to sexual minority disparities in the ABCD study and other cohorts in adolescents. Because I do think that there's a lot of topics that really haven't been explored at all in the research field in terms of sexual minority disparities. I think there's been relatively more on sexual health and maybe mental health and substance use, but I think there are so many other areas of physical health that are collected in ABCD and other cohorts that really need to be explored and um, identified more in the scientific literature. Thanks. And I'll leave a little Easter egg for people who've listened all the way through, which is that we're going to be launching a special issue of Annals on Health Inequities And one of the explicit calls will be around sexual and gender minority, as well as race, ethnicity, economic inequities. So you might line up and have a a great next paper as the health equity issue calls for manuscripts. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks again, Dr. Nagata, for joining us today. It was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And thanks again for the work that you do and making time to tell us about it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm your host, Patrick Sullivan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode and see you next time on EpiTalk Behind the Paper. EpiTalk is brought to you by Annals of Epidemiology, the official journal of the American College of Epidemiology. For a transcript of this podcast or to read the article featured on this episode and more from the journal, you can visit us online at www.annalsofepidemiology.org.